ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Christy Marchese. She's the founder and CEO of Cinema, a new social cinema platform that is building a worldwide network of screening hosts, filmmakers, and film goers, all with the ultimate goal of expanding access to engaging films and eliminating theater deserts. Hi, Christy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. You started your company before the pandemic, correct? I did. Yeah, yeah we started building maybe a year, year and a half before. And we're actually set to launch uh, right when the pandemic happened. Can you share just your original vision pre-pandemic? We don't know that what's going to happen is going to happen. What was the white space that you saw? Pre-pandemic, we were looking at doing entirely in-person screenings, partnering with mixed-use spaces, um, anything from libraries to schools, to movie theaters, to yoga studios, to bars, all of which are in our network, uh, to essentially register, license, or verify them as movie theaters. We would then build partnerships and have with distributors and independent filmmakers um, to uh, pass through licenses to those spaces. So think of it as a, a you know the largest network of movie theaters that aren't any movie theaters, entirely in person, nothing online. Wow. So then you really <laughs> you really did have to pivot. You really we did had a to big pivot. <laughs> so part of what you also were trying to accomplish was to make sure that there were no locations that were theatrical deserts. Can you just define that just so all the listeners know what a theatrical desert is and what you mean by that? Sure, you call it the theatrical desert or cinema desert, but essentially it's anywhere that either doesn't have uh, easy access to independent cinema, a, a classical regular cinema or just limited access to um, independent film via cinema. Okay. So in pre-pandemic times, you take advantage of spaces. Maybe they don't have a cinema, but you take advantage of these spaces. And so you're filling in this, this white space. But then the pandemic happens. You have to pivot to digital. But all of a sudden in a digital streaming world, are there such things as a as a cinema desert? Um, yeah. So we look at a couple of different ways. So, for, so first of all, this, this uh, idea also just didn't come out of the blue. I've been working and running a company called Picture Motion for about nine years. Mm -hmm. um, and a part of that work was working with independent filmmakers to manage their distribution. Uh, so we would do what we call screening tours or grassroots screening tours. Um, and we started building partnerships and relationships with individuals and spaces to host these screenings already. And these were films that maybe had distribution. They maybe had a theatrical distributor. They likely had some sort of streaming or on um, a virtual uh, experience down the line. Uh, but were meant to be viewed in person for conversation to bring people together. Oh, so it was actually, okay. yeah, it was actually in that work, in that um, agency model that we started building these relationships um, and this network and understanding what our uh, our partners, what our screening hosts needed. And this was really a response to that. How can we better build a technology to deliver the film? How can we support their marketing efforts? How can we more widely curate films outside the ones that that my last company was just hired to work on? So this was actually kind of a, a first in response to a need that we had developed at that company. Oh, that's really interesting. And you described the platform as a social platform and launching a social platform isn't easy. Google Plus tried it and bowed out. But you're conceiving of social platform in a different way, right? It's it's the shared experience aspect of that in a digital world. Is that is that a correct understanding? 
yes, you, you nailed it. You said it better than I could have. <laughs> yes, we uh, definitely did not go out, did not set out to create a new social network. I, I've worked, you know, I spent my entire career working at the intersection of, of film and entertainment, digital social media, and impact or community building. And last thing I would want to do is create a new social network. Um, <laughs> instead, it's, <laughs> I mean, we, we've seen it. <laughs> um, and so the, the idea there is actually, how do we bring in social elements of a movie going into in a, in a digital virtual way? So the first, it's, it's funny when we talk about this because we're, we're, we feel like sometimes we're existing in two worlds. So I guess everybody is in the pandemic right now. Are we going out? Are we staying in? What is the Delta variant? We're all dealing with these. But for us, when we when we launched the, with the initial intent to kind of address these, these cinema deserts, um, we ha- we built this product to better facilitate these in-person screenings because we really believe in the power of movie build of movie going and the social impact that it has. For us, movie going isn't just entertainment; it actually facilitates community and social interaction as well. Um, they create in, in cities, yeah, it creates cultural capital. Uh, which is um, some readers have said is, is crucial for upward mobility. So we looked at this also from kind of a, a, a social impact element of where they're not movie theaters. Why are there not movie theaters there? And you found there was a correlation to lower income areas. If, in order to have a massive theater, you have to have be able to appeal to a large enough amount of people for it to be economically sustainable. Well, sure. So if the finding, content isn't made by yeah. diverse audiences, the diverse audience isn't really going to be particularly interested in watching it. I mean, it doesn't speak to them. It doesn't reflect their life experience or values. So I mean, exactly. Exactly. see a, a vicious cycle there for sure. Yes. What structure we have is you have the distributors choosing films and you have the theaters programming the films or the theatrical networks programming them. Is there a model in which the community can drive or individuals mm. who are passionate can choose? And we say we support the filmmaking you want to see. So with, we look at it as actually very, very kind of micro audiences. So what our dream and our hope and what we're seeing happen is a church and, a, and churches can be a movie theater on Monday night. So every Monday night, all churches become movie theaters because they have the facilities, they have the community and they know what their community is interested in seeing. Mm. And so we can hyper program uh, or hyper localize the programming. These can be, you know, if we're working with Korean churches, it can be Korean drama films or Korean language films. If we're working and I live close to Chinatown. Um, and so, and I've seen there's, there's a small little museum on Canal Street that actually shows Chinese language films. It's not a movie theater. It's a pop-up space. Um, and so right. we're looking at doing those type of partnerships and that type of hyper, hyper local programming. Oh, so interesting. Consumers, their habits drive how they discover things. And it's it's rooted in human behavior, developmental biology, why we engage in things and what has happened with the prevalence and the proliferation of these giant social networks that we're not going to mm-hmm. compete with is people discover things like your service through social media. How are you partnering with social media or are you, you know, how, what is your yeah. relationship to social networks? So we look at as, um, we look at more of our screening hosts as more localized influencers. So for the digital product, it's essentially a virtual cinema that anyone can, any host can set up. So whether it's you or you're the head of let's say a church or an activist at it on campus or a huge. Oh, so it's for, for them. So it's the, it's the, it's the local community that does the social marketing of the content. It's not your exactly. platform. I see. So they're already engaged. They already have their audience. It's leveraging their network and activating the power of, of that network. Exactly. It's, it, these are very, very like, again, like hyper-localized influencers. And so you go, you pick your film, if you're choosing to use the virtual cinema, you set up the virtual cinema, you have the live chat features, which you as the organizer and host can moderate you can decide who, who comes, who goes, who stays. Um, you also have the uh, access to the live video features. You can do a live introduction to your audience. You could do, if you're a filmmaker or this is your film, you can do the, the director's cut and live stream 
in a small video feed in the upper right hand corner during the film. You also then can bring on your own guests or have your own conversation afterwards. You can have up to 17 people or up to 16 people join you in that live video conversation for your audience. And we give a lot of the, a lot of control to the host as well as to the filmmaker. When we're onboarding the film, we can set some protocols in place. You know, where are you geo-blocked in certain areas? Mm. Um, do you want to cap how many people or how many screenings you can have? Do you want to set a minimum ticket price or max licensing fee? All that kind of gets set up ahead of time with the filmmaker um, or distributor. And then the host can come in and say, okay, great. Do I want to sell tickets for $100 and use it as a fundraiser? Because we have the donation element. Do I want to make it free for my audience and make it unlimited and engage as many people as possible? We give them the ability to, to um, adapt the tool and the cinema for their audience's needs. And then, yes, at that point, they're essentially the influencer. They market and bring in their community. So silly, nitty gritty question, just out of curiosity. Sure. Okay, like sales tax, things like that. Do you take care of it? How does that work? Like it, where yeah, does the, you handle it? Like they're using you as a vendor and it's a straight purchase from you or are they a, a non, you know, are they getting it at cost? What is the, that kind of thing? How does that work? I'm sure it's all, it's all built in. So essentially it's, it's a revenue split. So we work with, uh, with a filmmaker to figure out you know, what is the, essentially the licensing fee for the host. If they want to license a film, meaning I want to purchase a one-time viewing license, or I want to show this film multiple times for a week. That's all preset with the filmmaker. And they, if they want it to be, the host wants it to be free for their audience. They then can pay that licensing free upfront, the upfront, mm-hmm. or which is the preferred model. And what we find has better turnout, better revenue is selling tickets. And it's a ticket split. So we can set with the filmmaker what the minimum is, meaning if they don't want their film to be seen anywhere for less than $2 a ticket or a transaction, we can set that or no more than $1,000 a ticket. We can set that too. Um, and then it's all just a revenue split. It's typically uh, 50% of ticket sales goes to the creator, the content owner, 40% to the host and 10% to the platform. And then we include in that any of the, the taxes, the credit card licensing fees and the bandwidth. And all in that terms of filing, but in terms of like filing the taxes and no, I mean, a lot of like, if, if you're a church, you may not have, or is it not taxable because it's digital and in real life is separate and different because there it's are different. also different rules. I mean, I think in New York, for instance, anything that's digital is still currently not taxed, but if you're in real exactly. life, you're, you're dealing tax. Because we actually, and I've been doing this for about 10 years now, that actually hasn't come up in that way. Um, oh, we've interesting. Like, hey, yeah, we haven't had to, we don't, we don't deal with any sort of taxes on that end. It's the, the organizers handling their events. And they, mm. if anything, they give them a, a box office management system so they can see their oh. revenue and they can see where everything's coming from. The only thing we've ever gotten asked for is just like invoices. Like, can you provide us an invoice in order for our tracking purposes? Oh, so that's interesting. That's, that's actually so it. That's how yeah. that... Well, so it's just, it's completely obviated and it just isn't necessary. When I go on your website, there are facts for the audience and there are facts for the host, but you've been talking about a third stakeholder, which is the filmmaker. Um, So if I'm the indie filmmaker, how does the process work with me? You know, how do I connect with you? How does that work? Yes. Good news is we're actually, we're going through rebranding right now and we will have a a brand new section with much more information for the filmmaker distributor to reach us. So yes, feels a little cryptic right now just because we've been building it. Um, but it'll be pretty easy. It'll be a short form that just says, you know, tell us about your film and we'll reach out to you. Um, right now, the way we built it, you know, in thinking about how do we want to approach this? I come from the agency model where we could work with a limited number of clients at a time. It's um, it's service-based. It's very um, bespoke campaign oriented. Mm-hmm. And this, we're trying to reach um, as many, fil- provide our tool set and our operating system to as many filmmakers as possible, while also maintaining 
a proper kind of a pipeline to the host that we work with. So no one is overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is we're still curating a little bit. We're not going to completely openly democratize the system just yet. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just looking at similar businesses and studying what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past. And so for now, we're going to still kind of curate a little bit of what films are coming on and what films, you know, we are kind of just giving access to the, the tools and the, um, the operating system and what films we're really going to partner with and back as a release and push to our network and really support in booking. So right now there will be just a form to fill out and chat with us and make sure it's kind of the right fit. Over time, once we feel like our, our system and our network can support it, we will likely open it up to be um, much more accessible for all filmmakers and anyone with a, a film product. Interesting. In an earlier episode of the podcast, I interviewed the CEO of Euler, which is a global digital distribution platform. And they, you know, so they connect buyers and sellers. You know, if you have a Southeast Asian independent filmmaker, they can connect with somebody else. Now, is this something that if you would be a a buyer on that platform, you would be a competitor to this platform, you run parallel to it? How I'm, I'm trying to understand how you where you sit, are you considered, you know, what are you in this? (laughs) Sorry, I, you know, to, to, to have a really amorphous question, but how do you do, are you a new blend of the two? Would you source content from there? Sure. This is like the existential business like question. I feel like I'm in business therapy right now. Like, who am I? What are we doing? <laughs> um, but it's a great question. We have to ask ourselves the same question. We're like, okay, wait a minute. Are we a technology software provider or are we a distributor in that way? And I think part of anytime you're doing anything new and different, you're trying to fit in where do you fit it in the existing system. And right. we, we don't have a clean fit in the existing system because we are trying to do a bit of both. So part of it is we are not a formal distributor in that we do not acquire any content. We do not um, do not buy films. So do you don't buy, own do the own IP. Anybody. It's somebody else. Exactly. It's you're a bit of a pastor. You're a facilitator. We are a facilitator in that way. So essentially think of it as would we you know, put in the settings of that film, you know, what's your licensing fee? What's your ticketing? What's your geo blocking? Um, what's your uh, wind, release window? Uh, we put all that in the system and then push it to the network. And the network says that we say this film is available within these terms. And then it's essentially a pass-through license. So any host can I say, see. I'm going to do one screening. I'm going to do 10 screenings. And we just pass through the rights to that individual host and event. So if I'm mentally trying to connect it to my old world understanding of things, you would be similar to a theater chain, but a really unique kind of theater chain. If Would that be right? That kind of? Yes, we... This is at the risk of sounding like every other, you know, attempting tech entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. It's like it's Airbnb for movies or it's like Uber for right. movies or right. it's a theater chain with no theaters. Yes, there is a bit of a there's a pass through there. Um, so right. we handle we, we do the licensing and rights management. We track that in our system. Um, we can do box office reporting and ticket sales. We track all of that for any any ticket sales happening for the virtual or the in-person product. Hosts can use our ticket sales tool so they can track all their finances, we can produce box office reports for the distributor um, from our quote unquote theaters, which are individual hosts. So yes, I'd say similar to a theater chain, except for um, uh, if these, each of our each of our hosts were doing one or each, each individual proprietors. If I'm a filmmaker and you're negotiating with me, I have no idea how many hosts are actually going to get my film. So how do, how do you work the terms on that? How do you, do you guarantee a minimum? Is there anything like that? Or is it a bit, you know, if I'm the filmmaker and I'm negotiating with you, but I'm actually negotiating terms that will be applied to this collection. Well, you know, what's interesting is 
it's less of a negotiation because we're not actually purchasing anything from you. We're just saying, you know, what do you, what do you, we know what performs pretty well, having done this for the last few years, we know on average about, you know, what a church wants to pay or what a corporation oh. should pay. And so we can kind of preset and make recommendations. You know, this is, let's say, you know, you're an independent filmmaker and you have a documentary on a hot issue and this is a pre-release or we're putting our network um, in our platform around at the same time as your theatrical release. And this will probably perform well with corporate entities. So let's put it at a higher licensing price or a higher ticketing price. And or on, on the opposite spectrum, let's say you're you know, a very independent filmmaker with a, with a narrative film, um, a very, very low budget, and it's been out for five years. I would recommend maybe putting it at a lower price point because it's been accessible in other areas. What's interesting is that even though um, part, of the, part of the reason why we aren't, aren't too um, prescriptive about when we work with a film is that we're finding that they, these events work at any time in a film's lifetime, both either pre-release for special events and even when the film's been out for a while. One of the films right. we worked on um, in kind of our, um, our early stage, kind of pre-release stage, the film was available on iTunes everywhere. It was available pretty much everywhere at the same time it came on our platform. But we found people were still using it as an organizing tool, as an awareness building tool, as and then the filmmaker was using it as a revenue making tool. And just mm-hmm. by the idea of someone saying, come to this film at this time or come because of this speaker, people were more likely and willing to pay, even though they could watch it at home on iTunes on their own time. They were coming for the social aspect. They were coming because you needed that kind of marketing push of why this film, why now? And it was being presented to them by someone they were familiar with. So even well, bundled film- with an experience and some yes. uh, some unique experience, and that often comes from the community conversation and link. Yes. Well, we look at anything and why does anybody decide to, to pick that film to watch? You know, what like going back to like basic marketing, like why do we watch anything? And a big part of it is being able to participate in the conversation whether it's, I don't know if you watch Suicide Squad too, but I was dying to watch Suicide Squad too this week because everybody was talking about it and I didn't want it to be ruined or the ending to be given away. So I'm rushing to see it. Um, and same thing with, with other films. Like, okay, I need to watch this film because my community is having a conversation about it or this celebrity is hosting a screening online. I want to participate in that. So it's, it's just one of those kind of marketing functions uh, to enforce mechanisms to get people to watch it within the time frame the filmmaker wants or distributor. Is it only films? Do you also do series? television series? Great question. Um, Maybe at some point, I think that the goal right now is to stay focused um, and work with filmmakers, focusing more on independent and partnering with distributors and eventually we'll do um, kind of larger streamer and studio releases. Hmm. Interesting. So define a host. If I'm a host, is there a membership? Am I a subscriber so that I join and then I'm, I get blasted with here's what's available. Think about it. Or how does that work? Uh, yeah, it's entirely free to join. There's there's no subscription. There's no fees for signing up. It's essentially your your name and email address, um, and we will see what you're interested in. So you can sign up and say, you know, blast me with everything. Um, over time, we'll be able to see what you've booked uh, and what films you, what screenings you've had, how well they performed, and through the system, be able to make recommendations to you based off of that. Uh, also, again, we're, we have grown during the pandemic and did our name launch and closed around at our soft launch in the spring and doing our bigger launch in the fall. All these features will be kind of growing as we grow. But the idea is to make sure we're, we're servicing and making recommendations to our host based off of their interests. Hmm. If I'm an audience member, is it like a regular theater where I purchase a ticket and my interest in a particular film is what drives it? Or am I really only able to access things where I'm an affiliate of the community, of the host community? Can I peruse anything that's out there? Is it limited in any way? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. And no, both. So it depends. So if, um, if an organizer or a host 
has decided that their event is private. It will not be listed publicly on our site. Um, uh, currently, it's in our discovery section, which is kinema.com slash discover is where you can find any public events. But if a host is like, no, anybody is welcome, whether it's in person or virtually, then it will be uh, listed on our platform. And yes, you can peruse and see what's available. And if you're like, actually, I've been meaning to watch this film and that's a cool celebrity co-host. I'm going to join this one. Or this is, you know, in my town and I didn't realize this was playing here and I never heard about this film. I'm going to go in person and check it out. Interesting. I understand the stakeholders, you know, the filmmaker, the host, the audience member. Explain again your revenue model and how you how you know your pipeline. Uh, sure. It's entirely it's a revenue share right now in which we take it to 10 to 20 or 30 percent, uh, typically 10 percent of ticket sales. And then depending on licensing fees and partnerships, up to 30 percent, depending on, on the deal that we're working with with the filmmaker and the extra support that we're giving. And when you say extra support is so is there a schedule of if we do a, it, we charge Y, how does that work? Yeah. And part of it's all, we're, we're determining it as we go and kind of experimenting. So our intention was to really provide like the technology, and the operating system for filmmakers to really manage their own screening tour, but also in some cases with films that we think will perform really well with our network, or we can put additional resources behind um, book and set minimum uh, event requirements, meaning like we would like to get 500 screenings to this film and think we can. And so we'll put additional marketing support behind it. We do have uh, platform access fees, meaning like because the, the virtual platform is really good, it's really secure. We have a whole set of tools for it. And we are trying to limit at this, t- at this time how many, um, how many people we're working with as we grow. We do have an access fee. So it's between $500 and $1,000. And it gives you access to uploading the film, doing our whole tool set, and running your tour uh, on the platform. So access fee of $500 to $1,000 and then 10% of our of ticket sales. And again, that includes the, the taxes and the bandwidth fees and everything. How about piracy? So we've done a couple of different things. So we have all the DRM approvals. So just also to backtrack, when we started this, when we first even started having conversations about this, we did a lot of research. We were looking at both what we were experiencing at my last company, what we wanted to build. We then surveyed about 6,000 of our hosts to make sure we were building a tool that they wanted to use. And that was solving some of the problems they had. And that would enable them to host more screenings. Mm-hmm. And then we talked to the bigger players. You know, what were the what were the studios worried about? And the studios have always been worried about piracy. Mm-hmm. And kind of the, the two main things are, can someone rip it off the internet? And what are you going to do if someone has, brings a, a, a camcorder to a movie theater and puts it on BitTorrent? Right. So all of that was like um, thought about at the very, very beginning. So both for the offline product, which is... Uh, the ability for someone, for a host to, sh- to download the film safely and securely to their computer and able and show it in their space without having the internet or a DCP or a DVD. And for the virtual product, which is the live stream, we went and got all three the DRM approvals. We've got our TPN security. We have visual watermarking and the option for forensic watermarking. Mm-hmm. So we've done everything we possibly could to make it as secure as possible. Interesting. Yeah, because security is so important because the IP is really all the value is wrapped up in that. And it's um, true. I mean, know, did you hear that with Black Widow? I think I was reading about that. There, there was some concern around Black Widow being ripped off of... Disney Plus for people just recording their computer screen and then putting it online. So it's it's still always going to be a concern. I think it's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's always going to be a concern and you're always going to have it evolving. I think we, we're really, we're really fortunate in that we have an amazing group of investors, advisors, and supporters that we, we get a lot of advice from about this. And they're, they, they said there are just, there's a very small percentage of people, but they are going to be determined to get the film and steal it from somewhere else, no matter what. And so it, it's going to be near impossible to build a system that a thousand percent protects you from everybody. So you have to do like the, the best job you can 
to prevent any sort of piracy, but there will, there will always be somebody that's going to try and do it, but they're probably not going to try and do it from us. They're probably going to try and do it from an easier source um, or actually or go into a theater and bring that camcorder or something. And so how can we build the, the best protected site we can and do it all the, you know, do our TPN security check, make sure we're constantly monitored, um, but also not to a detriment. And what's interesting is we, we've seen this in the virtual cinema too, is there's, there, it's, it's fascinating. Um, we, I think we forget how many people, you know, use Microsoft Edge, you know, on, let's say, attempted on an iPad um, that hasn't been updated in five years. And so they, they sometimes have difficulty accessing it because we have these um, right. DRM protectors in place. And so then you get frustrated um, viewers who then are like, right. why can't I view this film? We're like, well, we put a lot of precautions in place so no one can um, can steal the film. So please use Chrome and update your system. <laughs> so there's right. also so, only so much you can do. <laughs> well, right, because then you you do bump up a, against people who have um, have tech issues. And if you're talking about your cinema desert and you're talking about lower income communities, you may not have the most modern machines. You may not have high bandwidth. So Yes. There is, you're, you're running into that as well. Um, exactly. And for the virtual product, that what's great is it, you know, it kicks down to whatever the lowest bandwidth is. So we, you know, we can play a 4k film at the highest speed if your system will enable it for virtual viewing. And if it doesn't, then it'll kick it down to a lower resolution. And then for the in-person screenings, you're exactly right. One of the things we found is that you're not, everybody has the highest bandwidth for a live event to live stream a film um, for, for their event, And so when, you know, people aren't using DVD players, our partners don't use a DCP system. They really want to plug in their computer. That's why we really invested in this offline player. And so it's as a host, you know, you pick your film, you pick your time, you, you manage your license or ticket sales, and you get direct access to download the film essentially to your computer. It's only accessible within a very limited window without the visual watermark. But mm. once you download it, you can then play it without internet access um, in you know, your outdoor space or in a rural area or in an area that might not have great bandwidth. So that was very much something that we thought about at the beginning when we, when we started building this. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And I really look forward to seeing how it grows and evolves over time. Thank you. Thank you for your great questions too. I love a little business therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of the audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.